Welcome to the Start Something Show. Join world-renowned experts, change agents, and everyday folks who have done the amazing. All here to help you start something incredible. Now it's time to step out, live your perfect day, and create a legacy with your host, Tina Dietz. Well, hello there. Why, yes, it is time for another episode of the Start Something Show. I'm your host, Tina Dietz. Thank you for joining me here today, where we are building 10,000 thriving businesses, helping people live into their vision and create their business oasis. Yes. Ah. Let's have a little mental uh, palm tree and umbrella drink right now. Just a moment. Deep breath. Yay. All right. All right. Today on the show, I'm welcoming Ellen Rogan, New York Times bestselling author and financial wizard goddess. Ellen's coming on the show today to talk with us about money management from a whole different perspective. And um, just a little sneak peek, her TED Talk on teaching kids about money is just brilliant. So great interview. Looking forward to sharing that with you later on the show today. Before we get to that, of course, We have not had a Don't Be That Guy segment in a while, so it is absolutely time for everyone's favorite Don't Be That Guy. Our Don't Be That Guy today is brought to us from the very, very wonderful Kathleen Hewer. Kathleen Hewer is the owner of BrokenCordCommunications.com. It specializes in marketing music education. I'm a big fan of music and music education, so happy that she contributed this Don't Be That Guy. Thank you, Kathleen, for that. And our Don't Be That Guy today is Email Scraper Guy. Imagine this. You go to an event, say a networking event, or maybe a business education event. You end up handing out your business card to lots and lots of people. You come back from the event, and maybe 24 or 48 hours later, all of a sudden you're getting unsolicited emails from somebody's business. And you realize that some of the folks who took your business cards at one event or another have added you to their email list. Not only is this illegal, it sucks. Don't do that. Don't be that guy. Don't be email scraper guy. You're better than that. You can connect with people organically. For goodness sake, do you know that if you reached out to most of these folks personally whose emails and uh, phone numbers you've gotten from their business cards and created authentic conversations with folks for real, for real, they'd be so much more valuable to you than just sending them a random email that they didn't want. There's no faster way to get marked as spam than adding someone who didn't give you permission to your email list. So just don't do it. Be a human being. Don't be email scraper guy. And thank you again, Kathleen Hewer from BrokenCordCommunications.com for contributing today's Don't Be That Guy. If you have a contribution you'd like to make to one of our segments, hop on over to the StartSomethingShow.com and go to the Contact Us page. We love to hear about your Don't Be That Guy moments as well as tech tips and, of course, our ever-popular Super Starter of the Month. If you get someone you want to nominate for any of these categories or a tech tip you'd like to offer, make sure you tell us. We're happy to share it on the air. 
My guest today on the Start Something Show is Ellen Rogan. Ellen is the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Picture Your Prosperity, Smart Money Moves to Turn Your Vision into Reality. A perfect fit since we're all about turning vision into reality here at the show. And she is chock full of left brain credentials, that wonderful alphabet soup of MBA, CPA, and certified financial planner. Ellen is also the owner of a successful wealth management firm. But you know, what makes her really unique is that she also walks on what we call the right side of the brain, balancing those values, the big picture ideas, meditation even, and humor with all of her professional training. So she is as comfortable talking about the power of compound interest as she is talking about the power of belief. And Ellen is also the founder of the Abundance Activist Movement, whose mission it is to help the world think and act more prosperously. You can connect with her on her site at ellenrogan.com. Ellen, thank you so much for starting something with me today. Oh, so excited to be here with you. Thank you so much. It's really great to have you on the show. I came across your work of several years ago now through a show that you had on Horse's Mouth, which is a channel for financial planners. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that was just such a great show. You had so many interesting guests, but also adding on your own information. I've been looking forward for a while now to having you on the show. Now, I think I want to jump right in here. You started your business, I believe, way back in, you know, not way back, I'm sorry, back in your <laughs> 20s. Oh, my God. It was I kind of way back. That. that was horrible. I'm sorry. No, I just, I tell people I started when I was 12. <laughs> so it was, she was 1990. 12. She, was, she was a financial right? prodigy. That's why it was <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that was a little less horse's mouth and a little more foot in mouth right there. But we'll just keep going. What made you want to start your own business at that young age? So I was lucky enough to be the child of two business owners. My dad had had his own architecture firm for years, and I had been working as a financial advisor for another firm. And I remember him saying to me, oh, eventually you'll start your own firm. And I said, no, why would I do that? You know, like I was perfectly happy and really didn't have that vision for myself, but gratefully, I've always had people in my life that held a bigger vision for me than maybe I did at that point in time. And then some things happened with the firm that I was working for that I realized I needed to start my own deal. So that was 1990, and we're 25 years old, young, whatever, this year. So it was really kind of being in a situation that I felt like, okay, I needed to, I'm still friends with the guys I work for, but at the time they were doing some things that just didn't feel right for me mm -hmm. and figured the worst that could happen is it didn't work and I'd go do something else. I laughed. My background started as a CPA and that was always my fallback. Well, if I had to, I could always be an accountant again. Thank God I've never had to. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the financial industry is notoriously, in the past, has been notoriously skewed towards being fairly male-dominated. Did you find that you had to overcome anything as a woman at that time in the 90s? You know, we had to deal with shoulder pads. It was bad enough, you know. Was, <laughs> um, did you find that that was an issue or did that kind of bypass you? You know, I'm laughing that you said notoriously male-dominated. <laughs> and actually, it still is. At least 80% of my profession or the financial services industry as a whole are still men. And I always saw it as a benefit. You know, it was always the thing that I'm like, okay, this is something that sets me apart. There's not that many women. And I think I kind of go through life 
looking not at obstacles but as opportunities. I know that sounds kind of Pollyannish, but I really do. And it because my approach was always like, okay, this rocks. There's so few of me and so many guys that look very similar. I can find something that's unique even without even having to say how what I do for people is unique. So I think it was always a really great thing. It yeah. really served you. Served yeah, me. Yeah, and that so. attitude is probably what had you be able to bypass on some of the issues that I've heard from even some of the financial folks that I've coached. Mm-hmm. Best, and they would get stuck on this issue and they couldn't see the forest for the trees, whereas – what you're conveying is that, well, if you just view it as a benefit, then you're looking at it as a way to catapult yourself rather than something that might hold you back. Right, right. Yeah. And yeah, you know, we do tend to have to be, I think that sets us apart as entrepreneurs. It's part of that entrepreneurial fire that we tend to be either Pollyannish or I've been accused of being slightly delusional at times. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think of it as very optimistic, very visionary. But that gets us through the night many times when we're dealing with all the things that come along with starting our own business. Now, you have gone over the course of your career from being, like you said, an accountant, CPA, financial planner, starting your wealth management firm. And that has evolved into you being a New York Times bestselling author, speaking on a lot of stages, offering online programs, coaching. Can you tell folks who are out there, because a lot of our folks are starting out, they're practitioners in their own business, and they want to expand out the same way that you have. How did that evolve for you? It evolved for me for really looking at what I was good at and what I most enjoyed doing. So I started working as a financial advisor, working for a firm. And one of the ways that they really encouraged us to build our practice was through cold calling, which I realized very quickly was not something that was fun for me. Maybe some of the listeners think it rocks. It was not something I thought was great. And I kind of by accident started I took a Dale Carnegie public speaking course and started doing workshops as a way to build my practice and realized like it was really fun and it was a great way to build my practice initially. But just even that being up in front of a group and speaking and even more than that, being able to disseminate what I believe is helpful information to a broader group of people was always something that excited me. And I think very early I got a intuitive hit that my work in the world was to inspire others to achieve their greatness. And in my wealth management practice, there's only a certain number of people that I can work with one-on-one. And if I can spread this message of prosperous thinking and other ways to view money that are a little bit more expansive than is traditionally looked at, then I was really doing my work in the world. And yeah, so, and I was thinking when you were talking about the industry being very male dominated, I think one of my challenges is been being really comfortable talking in a more, if I would say, right-brained, maybe more feminine, I don't mean girly, but more of a feminine approach to looking at money. because Using the emotional whole, language. Yeah, and yeah. also really honoring that, yes, the analytics are incredibly important, but if you don't have some of the right brain types of things like creativity and intuition and focusing on values and dreams, then money feels hollow and meaningless or stressful. And if you can incorporate some of the more traditionally female type traits 
of, yeah, this more right brain things, your emotions, your feelings, your intuition, your creativity, whether you're a man or a woman, you know, when you can combine these two is really where the beauty happens. And that has been an evolution for me to feel like that's okay, because we as women have been brought up in this financial services industry in a very male model. And I think the world is shifting to a more balanced and integrating more of the feminine in things. And so that I think has been maybe more of a learning for me and being comfortable with that than necessarily being a woman in the financial industry. Yeah, I could definitely see where that would come into play. I was just talking with a male colleague yesterday and this whole idea of inclusivity and allowing this balance to arise, I think, is really important in general in business, but particularly talking about money. This male colleague of mine was talking about how he had published an article on a site that is for men. And it is a very, I mean, it's a very masculine brand, very masculine site, very strong. And he wrote about vulnerability mm-hmm. and the experience of being vulnerable as a man. And it was the most reposted, retweeted, reshared article that the website had had in a very long time, months. And he was surprised. We were just talking about how this language of vulnerability, this language of personal experience has become so important in the business world for us to interact effectively with each other. You seeing that as well across the generations and throughout the business that you're dealing with? Yeah, I love that word inclusivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I still think in the money world, it's very yang as opposed to yin. You know, it's all about the numbers. And in the maybe personal transformation world, there's people talking about beliefs about money and prosperous thinking. But in the traditional financial services world, there's very little conversation about what actually gets people to do the things they're supposed to do. And most of the conversation, even though they call it financial well-being, is really about the traditional analytics part of it, the projections, the budgeting, which is a word I can't stand. And so I think there's really an opportunity to have more inclusivity community really even around money because it's such a secretive part of our lives, right? We never talk talk about about what you make and don't talk about if you're having an issue and if you've ever been to collections or declared bankruptcy, don't tell anyone. No, it's a big shameful thing, right? And the, the positive psychology hasn't come to the money world yet. It's all about what people aren't doing well. (laughs) We're working on it now. Yes. We're working on it. (laughs) Well, and that goes back to what you were writing about in your book about picturing your prosperity, smart money moves to turn your vision into reality. Well, first of all, congratulations on being a New York Times bestselling author. That's a huge accomplishment. It's very, very difficult to do. So congratulations on that. Now, in the book, what motivated you to focus on that message? Well, what I know and what my co-author Lisa and I both have experienced, and we actually did a lot of focus group research on this, is that, first of all, people think in pictures and that the current discussion about money typically goes right down to the granular nuts and bolts about investing and savings. And what is missing is a broader discussion about what your money really means to you and what you could do and having a vision of what you want it to do for you. And so this idea of creating an actual prosperity picture for yourself was one that we found added the why 
for people in terms of why should they be saving for retirement or putting money away or being a savvy investor or all these other things. Because people are like, oh, I should do that. But for many people, it's never connected to why. Like, why is this important to you? And what do you really want your money to do for you? When I say to audiences when I'm speaking, you know, what good is having money if you go home and kick your dog and fight with your partner and you're miserable around it? Everyone shakes their head. Yeah, like that resonates. Yeah. And so this idea of combining both the right brain, visualizing, and we actually have a process we take people through to visualize, to create a prosperity picture, and the getting into action with the fact that we live in a material world and you need to take action in certain things and there's ways you can be savvy about your money. And combining those two, we felt was a really fresh approach to the financial planning discussion. Yeah. And I love that approach because obviously, you know, big keystone of what I share with my audience and it's one of the reasons I wanted to make sure people got this in the context of dealing with money is that vision is so important. It's so important in creating what you want. And so many people, including myself, money is not our prime motivation for doing things. You know, some people it really is, but a lot of people, especially mm-hmm. folks in this economy of social consciousness mm-hmm. or the economy of wanting to make a difference in the world and legacy, which is the conversation we're in on the show here, you know, money is important, but it's not the primary motivator. So we have to kind of connect that, connect those dots together. And I think that sometimes people, there's a thing like it shouldn't be about the money, like almost pushing it away. Like there's something not good about it being about the money. And it doesn't mean, I 100% agree, it's not the motivator for most people. There's a very small amount of people. Yet it can be an amazing tool for transformational change and uh, positive change in the world. I was having a conversation earlier today. Like I love Lululemon. I love their branding. I love their manifesto. And it's been up in front of me. I carry a lunch bag, one of their bags. And on it, it says friends are more important than money. And it occurred to me, and at first I'm like, oh yes. And then it occurred to me, like, why are they even comparing those two? Exactly. Like they have nothing to do with each other. It's like bicycles are more important than dogs. Like, (laughs) huh? Like they have nothing to do with each other. And it almost makes the money bad because we love our friends. So it must mean that money is something bad or dirty about it if you're comparing them that way. Yeah, like you can have good relationships or you can have money. Exactly. That has come up many times. (laughs) And so to start to realize when you have beliefs like that, oh, wow, if I'm thinking that, is that inhibiting my ability to generate more income, which then I can funnel into things that are important to me, my family, my community, the world is in general. But being able to generate money is an amazing tool. It is. And I'm going to link this together with your TED Talk, which was just wonderful on teaching our children about being smart about money and this kind of unique way of dealing with that around their beliefs. I actually started to cry at one point. I may start to cry again because that's how I roll. You said at one point in the TED Talk that when you catch your child daydreaming, instead of telling him to cut it out, ask them if they would mentally or daydreamingly create what they really want to go further into the vision. And I was so moved by that because it's so powerful for our children and for us. And uh, I think that really links together this whole idea that we have these beliefs that then dictate our actions, which then gives us the results that we have. 
And if we could start that with our children, then you know, it gives them that opportunity to have a bigger sandbox to play in in the world rather than you know the confining beliefs. Are you seeing any differences generationally? Have you noticed anything transgenerationally yeah. that is emerging? So them? what I've noticed, and my kids are, I have a sophomore in college and our daughter is looking at schools now. And so I've been, you know, taking her on college visits and they, we get all these brochures in the mail. And what I'm noticing now is the schools are bragging about the volunteerism their kids do. You know, one of the schools she went to talks about alternative spring break where they go and do volunteer work. Another one at Tulane, we were just down there. They require their kids to do work in the community to graduate. Like, how beautiful is that? That certainly was not the case when I was in college, right? And so, and it's more and more important to the kids growing up that they make a contribution to the world. So I love that. I love that. Where I'm not necessarily seeing a difference is in the conversations parents are having deliberately with their kids about money. Yeah, that's pretty crucial. What would some of the conversations you would love to see every parent having with their child? Yes. So I would love every parent to know that maybe even conception, but when their child is first in the world, they're absorbing your beliefs and attitudes about everything and specifically about money in, you know, in the conversation we're having. Because I think that parents don't realize what their kids are picking up. And so fights about money, discussions, even little things that you say to them about anything financial will have an impact. And so to be super deliberate about what messages you'd like your kids to pick up around money. And even if you're not black belt in handling your own personal finances, it can't mean that you're not talking to your kids about how you're learning or you're working towards this. I think back about we had a traditional household and my dad went off to work and my mom stayed home. And I remember all through growing up, if I'd want something that seemed a little bit bigger, my mom would say, well, I have to ask dad if it's okay. And she'd say things like, I have to get a check from dad. Like she didn't even have her own checkbook. And so fast forward, I'm in my 20s. And even though I had all these like letters after my name and had my own business, it really interpreted that that was my husband's job, which made no sense, right? I'm in the financial profession. And I had this unconscious belief that it was Stephen's job to be handling all the money stuff. And once I realized I was operating out of that, I I realized that that doesn't make any sense. And just because we believe something doesn't mean it's true. Right. But we make decisions as children just based on the information we have at the time. We don't necessarily go back and re-examine those beliefs. Whether it makes sense or not. And it wasn't like my parents are awesome. And it wasn't like even if my mom had been deliberate that she would have thought, oh, I can't say, you know, these things. But just to know that all that stuff impacts our kids. Yeah, absolutely. And that we do the best we can, right? Like, don't right. forget about it. Right. I, well, that that's the key, too. Like, you know, I mean, there have been times, especially as a therapist, where I've looked at a situation with my kids and gone, I wonder how much this is going to cost them in therapy later. <laughs> you know, but you have to kind of, we all survived. It'll be okay. It'll all turn right. out okay. Do the best we can. Just keep doing the best we can. <laughs> it's all good. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, you know. We talk a lot on the show here about creating a business oasis, and this is the whole idea of having a business that nourishes you and fulfills you, as well as the people that work with you and work with us. And what is your idea of a business oasis for yourself? Wow. 
I love that term. I'm writing it down, Tina. Business Oasis yeah. nourishes you and fulfills you. It's having a bigger purpose behind what I do and really moving from selling to service. So in two, when was it? In 2000, so people who aren't in the financial services industry might not remember this, but 2000, 2001, 2002 were really bad years for the stock market. And most of my peers' businesses were decreasing. And my business in 2002 grew 39% that year. And I really attribute a big part of that is moving from focusing, like you said before, like the money thing isn't really the motivator. And all my business goals up until that point were about new clients, assets under management, revenues, which I still focus, I still look at. But I really got in touch with how I am of service to the people that I work with. Like people were really freaked out then about their money. And I really got like, wow, I can really serve people and calm them down and make them feel better about their money. And that shift I think made a big difference. And continually, I'm looking at how I can serve in the work that I do and what the bigger goal is, you know, whether it's the audiences that I speak to, the clients I work with, you know, the message in the book. This is my second book. And it was a lot of work in terms of time, but such a joy to write. And I think it's because Lisa and I, my co-author and I had the entire time this idea of this is a message that can really change the world, can change how people are around money. It can have them be more generous. You know, my big, big meta goal right now is to inspire and awaken people to use their money as a force for good in the world. And I get how the world could change so quickly if people moved from, am I going to be okay, to how much can I give? So that's what really keeps me going. And in having that goal, you know, as a planner, it's frustrating for me sometimes when I'm not 100% crystal clear on the next business step. But it calms me down to know I have the big picture vision there. And then I can keep working towards that clarity on the next business step. It keeps you grounded. It keeps me, yeah, and it keeps me excited and motivated and less focused on me. And it moves me from scarcity to abundance, from like worrying about money to like, okay, I'm trusting there's more than enough and all happens in the right timing and how can I really be there to serve and knowing that I'm open to receiving and that there's plenty out there. That's gorgeous. That is beautiful. I love asking that question because every time I ask it, I get super inspired. I know everybody listening does too. So now for yourself to keep yourself in the space of, you know, business oasis and keep your vision alive, what's one or two habits that you have that help keep you on that even keel? first absolute one that is probably the biggest driver is meditation. I've been a regular meditator for 11, 12 years now. So with very few exceptions, every day I start my day with 20 minutes of meditation. And my ideal world, it's twice a day. Certainly if I'm feeling incredible stress, I make sure it's twice a day. And that has been one of the best things that I can do for me and not just for me, but for my family. And those days when I either can't do it, you know, I don't do it when I first get up or, you know, maybe, I don't know, every other month, one day I miss it for some reason. All of a sudden things feel less calm in my household. So I really believe that's key. And for those of you listening that think, okay, great, 20 minutes, are you kidding me? Like I can't do that. It can be a 10 second meditation. 
It's just knowing that we have the power to calm things down. Yeah. It's like a control alt delete for our mental. (laughs) Reboot, reboot. Yeah. You ever get the, hey, mom, or hey, hun, did you uh, get that meditation today? You ever get that? Yeah. As I know, my family notices if I'm not in my daily routine myself sometimes, too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then I've always had like a physical exercise thing. You know, I've been a big runner and for a while. And then this year I took up bike cycling, so which has been great. I spend more time with my husband that way. It's been a big challenge for me. Like, (laughs) I knew how to ride a bike, but like actually cycling, clipping in. Yeah, that's a whole other set of skills. That's a personal growth experience. (laughs) It's okay. You're just connecting those two halves of the brain there. It's all good. Right, right. Exactly. Well, you know, you're going to be joining us on the Backstage Pass to talk some more about the nitty gritty of money on the left and right sides of the brain. So I'm really looking forward to having that conversation with you. But before we move into that, I want to just let all of our listeners know that Ellen has contributed some wonderful articles for our superstarters on the Start Something website. And of course, you can find all the links to Ellen's book and everything we talked about today on the show at thestartsomethingshow.com. So don't worry about you know taking notes. We have it all there for you. You can just go back to the show notes on the website and enjoy. And if you want to learn more from Ellen and get some more information about, you know, digging deeper into your money conversation, handling your money and picturing your prosperity, you can become a superstarter as well at the startsomethingshow.com. Ellen, thank you so much for joining me here today. It was a great conversation. Thank you. So much fun. Yeah. I had so one more question to leave our superstarters with something to move themselves forward for this week. If you could offer them a tip or a piece of advice around their conversation or a practical step around prosperity or money, what's one that they might try on this week? I would say it's a non-traditional one, which is to be a generous giver. When you are more open to giving, and I mean financial giving in this conversation, all kinds of giving are important, but when you are more open to loosening your grip on money and sharing it with causes or people that are important to you, more flows back to you. There you go. Givers get, and the wheel of karma continues to turn. I agree. So thank you again, Ellen, and thank you listeners for joining us on this episode of the Start Something Show. We will see you on the Backstage Pass, and we'll also see you next week for another episode. Start something with purpose. Start something with freedom. Start something now. Go to thestartsomethingshow.com, join our community of superstarters, and get your perfect day planner pack, a free resource to help you create the life you've dreamed of living. Take action now, and we'll see you for our next exciting episode. 